Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. America is a nation in a constant state of flux, but often those changes are so subtle, so gradual, we hardly even notice them. Attitudes shift, old customs die out, new ideas are born about how we work, how we educate our children, how we govern. As the hearts and minds of Americans are altered, so too is the country. And then sometimes, under extraordinary circumstances, that metamorphosis kicks into overdrive. And the changes are so swift and so profound, you can't ignore them. The past 21 months have been full of those moments. When the country shut down, cars disappeared, and streets opened up, we found ourselves dining on double yellow lines and exploring on-foot roads we'd only ever driven. We looked anew at the infrastructure of our everyday lives. Now, as we speed ahead, we find that the routes we once traveled are no longer open to us. And in a lot of ways, we don't really know where we're going. But as anyone would know who has found their familiar commute unexpectedly rerouted, there are delights to be discovered in the detour. Sometimes in the disruption to routine, the break from the ordinary, you find a new direction. Sometimes when you're lost, you find a better way forward. My drive to build communities comes from just wanting to be able to shape and change my own world. Um, wanting to be a superhero is where it really comes from. You want to, you see these great superheroes, Spider-Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know, they're ch changing the world and shaping it by picking up buildings. I couldn't lift buildings or run faster than a locomotive, but I figure if I could touch one person, talk to one person, uh, create some beauty that people can see in their neighborhood, I felt as if I can create some change. and build some connection points for people to have discussions, to understand one another, and that's really what drives where I am. That's Sean Dunwoody, an artist and activist in Rochester, New York. He doesn't have superhuman strength, but if he did, he might have used it in his childhood to pick up and move a miles-long freeway called the Inner Loop. I've lived in Rochester all my life, so the Inner Loop has been in my life all my life, uh, you know. As long as I can ever remember growing up, you know, a few streets up from it, it was the sort of barrier or passing point to get to our downtown, this micro highway that divided a city. What makes a city a city is actually having people on the streets. As you know, you're in New York City. When I go to New York City, it's, it's, the, it's the energy and fire of having people on the streets. It's not so much how many cars are zooming past or, or you know, how many taxis are beeping. It's about how many people are on the street. Where's the vibrancy? In the 1980s, Rochester was a boom town. Xerox and Kodak and Bausch and Lomb headquartered there, employing nearly 60% of the population. Empowering that boom was the ring-shaped six-lane freeway. Completed in 1965, it was designed to help daily commuters go from their downtown offices back to their suburban homes. You had the great white flight or migration of people leaving cities and going to the suburbs. So it, it actually assured them there was a faster way to leave the businesses at which they work in and get out of town and go home. 
and then we got used to going to our malls. And so it's like we have to get on this thing to go to the mall or go to the airport. Uh, and that became the benefit. And that's what we thought was, was the best way to move us. Traffic. We don't want traffic. Everyone complains about traffic. We don't want traffic. The inner loop wasn't an improvement for everyone. It cut through a lot of urban neighbourhoods, like Market View Heights, where Sean grew up. Can you give me a bit of a history? So what was the sort of grand idea for this microhighway, as you called it? The grand idea was uh, in the 50s to actually build this in a, in a predominantly brown and black neighborhood at the time, where they did have connecting corridors, connecting streets. There was a street grid where you did have local businesses, uh, furniture stores, grocery stores, all these things were here. So I'm, I'm not old enough to remember these things. <laughs> Listen, I can attest, he's definitely not old enough to remember these things. <laughs> But earlier on, it was a, a thriving neighborhood. It was its own micro universe of people and things where people knew people. They actually knew people. And to hear some of the stories of, you know, folks like my parents and people who are still in this neighborhood, you know, tell me the stories. Even my own family had a great record store business in the neighborhood. So then you have this big ditch that is created to move people in and out of the city, which then doesn't create those connection points for people to get to these businesses. And so it's really that there was a great sense of loss. And when you talk to them, it's like they point when you're walking the streets with them, they're pointing. This used to be X, Y and Z bakery. This was a furniture store. I could go here and get my shoes. I could go here to the tailor shop. And so you don't have it. The business corridor is gone. Um, empty storefronts along the way. And um, yeah, it's it was a great loss to a community to people and, and disheartening. For those Rochester residents, the inner loop never worked. And as time went on, it stopped making sense for everyone else. The boom that accompanied the inner loop's construction went bust. After decades of decline, Kodak filed for bankruptcy in 2012. Xerox moved the last of its staff from downtown a few years later. In 2012, just 6% of people were still employed by those big three brands. And Rochester, like so many cities in America, found that it invested millions in infrastructure to support an economy that no longer existed. Those entities are now gone. And so we're left with some of the remnants of what was built to help them move forward. We're stuck trying to figure out what to do with them. And one of those being this inner loop. City leaders had been thinking about what to do with the inner loop for decades. And in 2013, they got the funding needed to fill in the eastern part. But Sean says the community didn't have much of a say. Instead of affordable housing or green spaces for people to enjoy, it's a mass of bike lanes and expensive apartment buildings. So now it is built up. There are large lots that were sold off that developers developed three and four story apartments on. So looking at the process and the plan, it worked out perfectly. But me personally and some other folks, a lot of other folks, it, it feels as if there's instead of removing a moat, as we like to call it, because of the sunken highway, we've built a wall. So there's these still still these super blocks that if you're trying to walk, there's no way to cut through. You're still walking on these larger blocks. So you, we've built a wall instead of having our moat. Now Rochester is planning to fill in the northern section of the loop. And this time, Sean wants to make sure the process is more representative of the entire Rochester community, with all ethnicities, races and socioeconomic groups sitting at the table. He's been working with Suzanne Mayer, a neighbour who lives across the freeway, to make the planning process more inclusive. To do that, he and Suzanne came up with a community group called Hinge Neighbours. So what we're pushing for with 
this Interloop North project is actually think about the residents, think about low density, think about how do we actually create engagements and go back to the grid. We're trying to go back to the original grid that we had prior to the Interloop tearing up these neighborhoods and communities, which creates a commute and a connectivity for people to downtown and to neighborhoods. And it makes it a lot more walkable as it originally was designed. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're talking about how COVID-19 has created a moment for us to think critically about the systems that we've built and decide if they're serving us, all of us, well. And in our final episode of this season, we're looking at our nation's infrastructure, the physical and organizational structures that make our society function. During the pandemic, many Americans started to view these systems in a new light, maybe even consider them for the first time. Remote working meant engaging with our homes and our neighborhoods differently. When we didn't have to commute in our cars, all of a sudden giving over precious space to them seemed a bit backwards. We wanted green spaces, local shops, open streets. And instead of waiting for some long red tape process to give the people what they wanted, these changes happen mostly overnight. We realized what is possible. And now we're pushing for these sustainable and more equitable visions for our communities to root permanently into the ground. And with the bipartisan infrastructure bill set to funnel billions of dollars to cities and towns across the country, we have a chance to do just that. In this moment, we have the kind of opportunity to choose what kind of future our infrastructure will enable. But large questions remain. Whose needs will be prioritized? And can we avoid the mistakes of the past? When did you first become interested in transportation? Well, it's a tortured, long story. That's Norman Garrick. He is an emeritus professor of transportation engineering at the University of Connecticut. I retired in July of this year, after 35 years at UConn. Norman might have just retired, but it doesn't mean that he's stopped thinking about how we move around and how we can do it better. It's really given me more freedom to pursue things like we're doing here. So to get to talk about transportation in a different way, to reach a different audience. So I am a Jamaican native. And my choice of where to work or what to do was um, predicated on the fact that I needed to be able to get a job as an immigrant. So I started out as a pavement engineer. And in fact, I got a PhD in chemical analysis of asphalt. That's a very specific... uh... Very, very specific. (laughs) But at the time, that's where a lot of money in transportation was going. So I got a job at UConn, and after I got tenured, I realized that there was no way that I could do this for the rest of my life. There was only so much asphalt you could have in your life. Yes. (laughs) So I, I remember one day I came home and I said to my husband, I'm going to quit. And he talked me down. So I went for my first sabbatical in 1996 to Cambridge, UK, and What was fascinating there was to see how people lived. I had forgotten that people took transit, walked, took bikes, and that there were old people that got around cities because those are things you don't see in America. 
And so when I came back to America, I started to see how I could incorporate what I saw in Cambridge to my teaching and to my life in America. When we think of transportation, what do you think that America gets wrong about it? What America gets wrong about it, it's that it's more about vehicles and it's more about speed than it is about the real purpose, which is community making and connecting people. And we have forgotten those fundamentals in pursuit of speed and in pursuit of the monies that come from building, laying a lot of concrete. That pursuit of speed was what inspired projects like the Inner Loop in Rochester, big concrete arteries that came up in the 20th century, a brainchild of President Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower wanted to demonstrate just how difficult it was to get around by road in America. We had we had no really good system of traveling interstate. The roads were not only that they were relatively small, but the, the pavement in many places just disappeared. So Eisenhower organized a a stunt, basically, to show how difficult it was to drive across the country. And it took weeks, essentially. And the tanks were stuck in the mud and so on. Wait, so he took tanks, Norman? He drove around the country with tanks? Exactly. They were going across to show how you'd mobilize the, the troops going across the country. But the other thing about Eisenhower is that when they were liberating Germany, he was at the head of that group. And what they found in Germany was a interstate. And so they were just able to roll into Berlin. So those two experiences seem to have had a big influence on his thinking about highways and highway systems. Politicians like Eisenhower weren't the only ones pushing for this change. Big business wanted in on the action too. Car makers, construction companies, asphalt purveyors, from the rubber to the road, there were forces that wanted to help shape the new vision of a connected America. But this proposed metamorphosis was met with resistance. It was a pitched battle because streets at the time were for people to play in, for kids to play in, for people to sell things. Streets were for people, not just for moving things. But the forces that wanted to sell automobile, that wanted to sell tires and lights, they felt that they had to reconstruct our concept of American cities. And so this was a battle that went on for maybe 20 years, and the car folks won in America. The Federal Highway Act of 1956 authorised about $242 billion in today's money to construct 41,000 miles of interstate highway over 13 years. And despite some community pushback, many cities jumped at the opportunity. You have to understand that at the time, cities were in desperate conditions. They had to be competing against newly developed suburbs these suburbs that had been funded largely with government funds. And these cities were losing population. The car numbers were growing. And so cities all over the country were desperate and they saw themselves as needing to become like suburbs in order to compete with the suburbs. So as America has done so many times over the course of its existence, the nation transformed itself and cities started to look very different. But what was lost in the process? 
whole communities, independence from cars, space to move and breathe. Instead of saving cities, the interstate actually accelerated their decline and divided their black and brown communities. Partly it was the idea that we needed to build the freeways through the cheapest land. And in many cases, that would have been places where black folks lived. In some places in the South, it was the idea that we needed to separate. We needed an additional barrier between black and white communities, especially in the South. So I think those two things came together. It was this um, racialized um, attitudes towards where black people lived, but also the engineering methods that facilitated the idea that we would take the cheapest land. It's all over the country. It includes New Orleans, um, St. Paul, Minnesota, Chicago, Duluth. <laughs> it's, it's Oakland. It just, it go- just goes on and on and on. You were talking about this. This is sort of a, um, the desire to be efficient and the desire to be quick. And in a way, they are sort of hallmarks of modern American society. Yes. But we just underwent this collective pause, reset potentially with the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the pandemic, do you think, changed the way that we think about infrastructure and maybe what's possible? Those people that already understand some of the shortcomings of the current system, it's helping them to get out their message. For example, in your city of New York City, this idea that we need to not give so much space in a city like New York to cars, that's becoming more evident when people see that they actually can close down streets, they can have restaurants using that space. Um, All of those things have re-energized a part of the population. And I think that's where some of the changes will come from. But the other thing, of course, is that we are rethinking this issue of jobs and where you need to be to work. And why that is important is that a lot of transportation model is about getting people to work. Basically, in our models, we ignore other types of travel and focus on that. And this rejigging of priorities might also force a change in terms of how we model and how we um, educate the next generation. Norman says that redesigning America's cities in a way that supports communities and the environment doesn't mean that we have to scrap space for cars altogether. But it does require us to make more room for all the other things that make communities thrive. When we have discussions like this, it sounds like anti-car, anti-highways. And I guess the really important point is that the technology is not the problem, it's how we use it. And we have used these tools to excess. We um, use them for everything where other ways of getting around would be beneficial to our health, to our pocketbooks, and to our well-being as a society. And so really, it's, it's, more, it's somewhat about balance, and we have totally lost the balance in terms of the interstate system. The pendulum is swung too far. Too far, extremely far compared to any other developed country in the world. Do you think that we have a moment now in this pause, this reset, because of the pandemic to get that pendulum 
swinging back in the other direction a bit? It has been swinging um, slowly. The problem I have with those changes is that it's taken so long. But yes, we are swinging in that direction. The structures that we've built, out of concrete or out of policy, are in some ways always going to be anachronistic. They fit a time period or a mentality that shifts and turns, even when the roads don't. But perhaps what remains a part of American idealism is that there's always the opportunity to build something better. I always say that transportation does bring out the little boy and little girl of all of us, right? Um, whether it was at Christmas, you know, opening up that first train uh, set or or otherwise. But I frankly, as a job, I, I'm more stumbled into it. That's really where the love began was seeing how both a sort of Again, that little boy, little girl, seeing how that train or car or device works, but also seeing how critically important it was to the lives of people. And so I think bringing that kind of, you know, childish love for, for transportation to, um, to, to really being in, an impactful place in public policy is really where, is where I really got my start about 20 years ago. Rich Davey is a partner and director for the Boston Consulting Group, where his focus is on public sector transportation and infrastructure. Before joining BCG, Rich led some high-profile organizations in the public sector. He was the secretary and CEO of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation, and he was the head of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. My mom, of all people, gave me a clock from my desk with a quote on it that said, you're only as good as your last rush hour, right? So this was my mother judging me twice a day. You can imagine what the rest of the public was doing. I, but I, I use that to say that, I mean, it's impactful, right? There are, I also told the joke that when I was transportation secretary, you know, at, you as a citizen could avoid maybe the education secretary because you didn't have children and, you know, weren't into public education. Or if you were healthy, could avoid HHS. But in transportation, you couldn't avoid me. Transportation and infrastructure have always been critical aspects of American life. And today, in large part because of the passage of a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, we're all talking about it. The way Rich sees it, it's a moment for the rest of the country to geek out on his favourite topic and get excited about the transformations that could come as a result. When we think about what could be done with the investment from the infrastructure bill, this trillion dollar bill, and, and you know, how do you think it could radically reshape our country's infrastructure and our relationship to it? I think there's hope because you know, more than maybe in, in, in a long time, we saw some bipartisanship um, you know, established um, through uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats to, to move um, the bill forward. So I think I'm broadly hopeful that that might continue. But in terms of the investments that would be made, I think that you know, at the highest level, you know, President Biden, Secretary Buttigieg, and, and the USDOT will be pushing equity and climate as they fund programs. But I also think from the bottom up, the real grassroots, people will be pushing, um, again, whether it's for big policy ideas around this or just literally, hey, you know, I want to be able to dine outside and, you know, we're not reserving all this space for parking like we once did. So I think that's why I'm optimistic, because you have a confluence of both the top and the bottom coming together, I think, on this question. I love that idea. And sorry to be a downer on your optimism for a second, Rich. No, please. Mm -hmm. The cynic, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm a cynic at heart. Yes. How do we know that that the climate and the racial equity and a sort of true correction of some of these historic injustices really truly will be borne out in where the money gets allocated from this trillion dollar federal bill? How do we know that it will actually be used appropriately when it gets to 
state hands, when it gets down into local government, it's not always clear that it's going to actually positively impact the communities that have for so long been not heard and sometimes purposefully not heard. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. I mean, we are still, you know, revisiting history on some of these instances, right? So it's not as if to your point that all was fixed and forgiven in the infrastructure bill that was just signed. Uh, but what it requires is, you know, again, I think a push um, to hold leaders accountable that in fact, you know, equity and climate and, you know, other challenges uh, can be addressed or at least not exacerbated uh, by infrastructure investment, but certainly can be, be be helped. So there will be public hearings, I'm sure, across America to talk about how to invest these, you know, how to invest these funds. When you talk about public hearings and, and, and public board meetings and the like, typically what you're thinking about and what ends up manifesting is that you see a lot of Caucasian residents, usually affluent residents, attending those meetings, and they're the people who tend to get heard. So what's being done right now to address this process, the public planning process, to ensure that people who historically haven't been given a seat at the table, haven't felt like they are wanted at that table, actually do have space to voice their own concerns about how infrastructure projects might affect their side of the neighborhood. I mean, that, that's that been the history of, I think, public process in general is you see folks, you know, I'm a 48-year-old white dude. Uh, you're going to see more of me showing up at meetings uh, because I have the flexibility to, because I don't work, you know, I don't work a nine-to-five shift. Um, I can use, you know, technology because I have it available to me. Um, I might even know some of these office holders, right? They might be friends or something. But to your point, like, how do you address those sort of, you know, those initial, I think, inequities. Um, and there's a few ways, right? But I think tactically, um, you know, you see some creativity in how public hearings are, are held pre-COVID in particular. Um, there was a mayor in upstate New York who started providing um, childcare uh, at meetings so that, you know, single parents could attend and not have to be concerned about, you know, the well-being of, of their child or the child disrupting, you know, a meeting, for example. So, you know, providing that childcare really changed the, the dynamic, if you, you, as you would expect, and the voices at the table, as you said, for sure. Unfortunately, you see this in pockets, but I don't think you wholesale see the kinds of policies like childcare or technology or, you know, ensuring that you're not just having two public meetings, but really deeply engaging folks and going to communities um, is, 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 is not systemic. I think it's, you see it in pockets, but you really, you know, we really need to see better, I think, engagement strategies from, uh, from policymakers. Let's talk a little bit about the bipartisanship that you were more hopeful. You're certainly more hopeful than I am on. Um, yes. Look, we're living in a moment where a lot of political rancor at the moment is centered on a tension around whether or not systemic racism even exists. So when we're talking about, when you're talking about infrastructure and you're talking about systemic issues like systemic racism, when you're talking about environmental injustice, and there are large swathes of political factions in this country who fundamentally push back on the existence or reality of those points. How do you see there being a consensus around what infrastructure could be in the country? 
Because I think, you know, part of the challenge I see kind of is that when I was in the public sector, we might have been entitled to our opinions, but but we tried to have a very fact-based conversation. And I think that's one challenge right now in our country is is the lack of, of facts. By and large, you know, it seems like the Congress can get one or two important things done every couple of years and then has to go back to fight uh, to be reelected. Where the action is, both politically and I think implementing, is, is at the state and local levels. And I think they tend to be, not always, but they tend to be a little more balanced because they're hearing from their constituents. We had the opportunity to support through our work, a number of gov- state governments um, in in their COVID response, and you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, the citizens just you know wanted clarity on their kids' education. They wanted clarity on you know when their jobs would be potentially returning, on you know childcare concerns, and then you know the bread and butter and brick and mortar of government services. DMVs were closed for weeks and months. So. Like, you know, I think when you tie it back to tangible results, I think the average citizen, not again, not everyone, but the average citizen, maybe 75 or 80 percent of us are, are actually that's truly what we care about and less about the sort of rhetoric around, you know, flashpoints, um, if you will. And look, I, I have to say, you know, in my experience, too, I saw a lot more folks who were interested in just serving their communities that they were, although full time legislators in Massachusetts, you know, they had their own businesses, they had their own um, constituencies, many ran for, for office for the very reason we're talking about, which is they were disappointed in the, you know, the incumbent's approach to, um, to these kinds of service delivery. So, you know, I, 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 while I share some of your pessimism, I do remain optimistic because I've just, you know, I've spent so much time sort of, if you will, on the ground, engaging with people who don't really care about the back and forth between, you know, this faction or that side. But just generally, genuinely want to see their communities be better. And 85% of the time, I think if that's your starting principle, you can find reasonable and healthy compromise to get stuff done. There are real obstacles to progress, but the pandemic has presented a unique opportunity to address many long-standing problems. And Rich thinks we're poised to seize the moment. Just thinking about the last 21 months, like so much damage has been done. But at the same time, it's also given us a moment to perhaps think differently about very fundamental aspects of life. How do you think things have changed and, and where do you see things going? I can't imagine, at least in my, my home city of Boston, that the streets of, of Boston will be immediately seated back to vehicular traffic, but that there's a real realization that... Um, using the precious resource we have, which is land in cities, um, and is in many instances dedicated to vehicular uh, movements, um, is going to fundamentally change. And that's not going to be in suburbs and rural areas, but but I think in American cities uh, for sure. And I don't think that's going back. And that can mean a whole host of things, right? Improve greenhouse gas emissions, more pedestrian amenities, getting to, you know, vision zero, which is no pedestrian deaths or, or cyclist deaths in a city. As a society broader than transportation, look, I hope that the pandemic has given us pause um, to once again say, regardless of who we are, what beliefs we have politically, or where we came from, you know, we're all vulnerable to this microscopic virus we can't see because we're human. And um, 
you know, we fundamentally share more characteristics and, you know, more, more dreams and, 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 and a collective outcome than not. I think the, probably the seminal moment for me in my lifetime was being in New York on 9-11 20 years ago. And I remember for weeks, very little honking and in New York that was more peaceful and, and serene and quiet and respectful of one another. Uh, that's not today, 20 years later. Um, but, um, but I just hope that the experience that we've all lived through in the last, you know, 21 months plus, um, isn't forgotten and that we try to draw from it a, um, a, co a commonality that makes things like infrastructure debates easier to have. The COVID-19 pandemic has done more to change our world than anything in recent history, from what we talk about to how we come together, how we find support to where we live. It's changed industries and it's shaped innovation. It's brought solidarity as much as it's caused new divisions. But perhaps like so much of our past, there are opportunities that emerge from the chaos, new solutions that are born of crisis. The pandemic has forced us to hold up a mirror. The government's critical. It really revolves around trust. Reluctant to break out of norms. And rethink our routines. It really is part of a social contract, right? Is this normal? Can it be better? Can there be a better system? Our work. We expect work to totally fulfill us as human beings. only go so far in pushing the boundaries if you don't step back and think about how it's done. Our education. National policy. Three key bearers to the digital divide. Millions of children who have that reality. I had to choose where my time could be spent to have the biggest impact. And our future, what it looks like, feels like, and who it includes. They have Can the U.S. be self-sufficient? The biggest force movement that's happened since the Industrial Revolution. What are human beings for? What What is the point of a human being? I would put the onus on all of us. Back in Rochester, Sean Dunwoody and the members of his community group have worked through the pandemic to bring their vision for the Inner Loop's transformation to life, a vision that heals the ties that were broken all those decades ago. Looking forward and thinking forward, cities are understanding that it's valuable to have people in the streets and have people reconnected to their environments to feel a sense of place and a sense of connectivity. And we, yes, we can have places for cars, but in most cases, we leave that car to go to places we walk, we stroll, and that gives us that, that point of living life. It will be years before that section of the inner loop is filled, and it's unclear if or when the entirety of the freeway will be transformed but Sean hopes that he'll get to see that day and he can already envision what it will look like. If you imagine that the whole inner loop is gone and all of these priorities like racial justice, environmental justice, this community-oriented approach that you've been talking about, if that's all centred, now what does Rochester look like? Now what does it look like? It looks like there's a new Rochester and it looks like it has potential. It has potential and has energy. It has connectivity. Uh, this is where we can we can make those new bridge points that we didn't have previously. Now, once we have this this connectivity, once again, we can see our neighbors, we can see their creativity, we can see their promise, we can employ one another, we can learn from one another. One of the things we have in the middle of our city is a, is a waterfall. We have two waterfalls in the middle of our downtown. And I try to express and explain to people all the time that the power of that, that waterfall, what it did was it brought people here. You know, it brought life to the indigenous folks who, who uh, 
who were in this land originally. It then brought uh, industrial movements to the city of Rochester. It then brought social movements to the city of Rochester from the abolitionist movement to the suffrage movement. Uh, it brought technology to the city. And just like that, that waterfall, that energy is always moving and always flowing. So despite what changes happen, that energy is always flowing. So I believe that Rochester will still maintain that energy and that flow and that promise because it's there. It's what has sustained our lives. It is what has brought us life. And um, with this eventual energy, Luke Phil, it will bring a new sense of life, a new sense of energy that we can still continue to flow and create new things. I'm Caroline Modoresi Tarani, and you've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Thanks to our entire Atlantic Rethink team, Christian Nielsen, Alona Minkowski, Jordan Tyker, CJ Ferroni, Emily Beaner, Callie Gregg, Devin Rochford, and Maddie Loosebrock. And of course, to our brilliant editor, Evan Viola. Thanks for making me sound so good. Thanks as well to our counterparts at Boston Consulting Group, Nidhi Sina, Catherine Manfrey, Brooke Boyke, Emily Aptaker, Danny Werfel, and all those whose voices and ideas helped build this season. And thanks to you, the listener. Join us again next year as we embark on our third season of American Metamorphosis, one that goes from acknowledging the shifts in our society today to what those new foundations will look like tomorrow.